This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, the Tom Hartman program, Counterspin, the Young Turks, the Rachel Maddow show, and Real Time with Bill Maher. We've become accustomed in the past 20 years to seeing the issue of guns in America broken down into two camps. Gun control advocates led by police chiefs and Sarah Brady against the all-powerful National Rifle Association, which not only asserts a Second Amendment guarantee of gun ownership, but uses its vast war chest to elect sympathetic politicians and defeat opponents. But according to Adam Winkler, UCLA law professor and author of Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America, there was a time, relatively recently in fact, when the NRA supported gun control legislation and the staunchest defenders of so-called gun rights were on the radical left. That piece has been excerpted in The Atlantic. Adam, welcome to On the Media. Thank you for having me. I'm old enough to remember when the NRA was substantially an organization that promoted marksmanship and hunter safety. And I've seen some of this evolution, but I was genuinely stunned at recent history, which had somehow escaped me. Mainly the origin of the gun rights movement in California in the 60s. One of the surprising things I discovered in writing Gunfight was that when the Black Panthers started carrying their guns around in Oakland, California in the late 1960s, it inspired a new wave of gun control laws. It was these laws that ironically sparked a backlash among rural white conservatives who were concerned that government was coming to get their guns next. The NRA mimicked many of the policy positions of the Black Panthers, who viewed guns not just as a matter of protection for the home, but something you should be able to have out on the street, and also protection against a hostile government that was tyrannical and disrespectful of people's rights. There was an incident with a traffic stop. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were sitting in a car, lightly armed. They refused to give up their firearms. Huey Newton had gone to law school for a short time and had learned that in California it was lawful for him to be carrying loaded weapons as long as he carried them openly. In fact, the most dramatic incident was when the Black Panthers, 30 of them, showed up at the California State Capitol armed with loaded rifles, pistols, and shotgun and marched right into the legislative chamber while it was in session. In fact, they were debating a gun control law and the Panthers were there not to do violence, but to protest this gun control law. This episode freaked out conservative politicians, including the governor of California, who could not for the life of him imagine a situation where a lawful American would want to carry a loaded weapon in public. Uh, What was the name of that governor? That was Ronald Reagan, uh, who would go on to become the first presidential candidate ever endorsed by the NRA. And, of course, his politics did shift. He was an astute political strategist, and he understood by 1980 that he needed to support gun rights to keep his new right coalition together. And he was such an opponent of gun control when he was in office that even after he was the victim of an assassination attempt, he pushed for no new restrictive gun laws. So tell me more about the origins of the National Rifle Association, and when did they become radicalized along Second Amendment lines? 
The NRA was formed right after the Civil War by two former Union soldiers who were convinced that it was the poor marksmanship of Union soldiers that had allowed the war to go on so long. In the 1920s and 1930s, the NRA was a supporter of gun control, pushing states to adopt restrictive laws on concealed carry of firearms. In the 1960s and 70s, a series of assassinations like Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy and the race riots and the Black Panthers all led to a new wave of gun control laws. The NRA became divided between those who thought guns were primarily about hunting and recreation and those who thought guns were about personal protection against criminals in urban environments. Those hardliners ended up staging a coup at the annual membership meeting one year and replaced the entire leadership of the NRA with a group of hardliners who were committed to fighting gun control at all costs. This was a schism that occurred at a point when the existing leadership of the NRA really wanted to move out west and focus on hunting. That's right. I think of how different politics in America would be had the leaders of the NRA in the early 1970s carried through with their plan to retreat from political activity, move to Colorado Springs, and focus the organization on outdoors activities. That didn't happen, of course, and the NRA became committed to a very extreme view of the Second Amendment that really fought against any new gun control proposals under the theory that any new law was a slippery slope towards total civilian disarmament. And that view has really shaped gun rights in America ever since. Adam, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Adam Winkler is a professor at UCLA and author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America, which was excerpted in The Atlantic. I want to share with you something that you don't know. And I, I think I can say this with some certainty because I, I, you know, I'm pretty knowledgeable about what's going on around America and what people are thinking and what people think our history is. And I didn't know this. And I, this, this is just, you're going to find this amazing. So just hang on for the next, you know, five, six, eight minutes here. Let me share this with you. First of all, we've got this whole Second Amendment thing going on, right? This whole, this whole general craziness. And the, kind of accidentally, Larry Ward, the chairman of Gun Appreciation Day, brought the, what I'm going to share with you into, into sharp relief on CNN today. Uh, he was being interviewed, and here's what he had to say. He, this is, you know, a pro-gun guy. If African-Americans had been given the right to keep and bear arms from day one of, of the country's founding, perhaps slavery might not have been a chapter in our history. African Americans were brought here as slaves and kept in slavery, so there's not a relationship between the two. Slaves, by definition, don't have guns. But... He's actually getting really close to the real truth of the Second Amendment. 
And again, a tip of the hat. I mentioned this yesterday to uh, Shano, our, our associate producer here, who shared with me Carl T. Bogus's, uh, Dr. Dr. Bogus, this is really his name, B-O-G-U-S, um, uh, Prof- Roger Williams University of Law, School of Law, associate professor, uh, his book, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment, which I read in its entirety today, and I pulled out about, I don't know, 15, 20 pages of excerpts, and I wanted to share with some of this with you. This is why there was a Second Amendment. 1787, the Constitution was written. 1788, it was being sold to the states, and the states were having meetings to decide whether or not to ratify it. It was ultimately ratified in 1789, and then in 1789, 90, 91, the the amendments were added to it, the the, uh, uh, first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights. So that's that's the timeline. So in June of 1778... Uh, in Richmond, Virginia, the the delegates of Virginia got together to decide whether or not they were going to vote for this Constitution, which one of their own, James Madison, was out aggressively promoting. And they had some concerns, and there were people from other states who were visiting as well, and in fact, many of the southern states were kind of, you know, talking to each other about this at the time. And, and here is, I just want to share some quotes from these meetings that were happening in 1788, the actual people, the actual uh, legislators, the first is from Pierce Butler of South Carolina. He said, the security the southern states want is that their Negroes not be taken from them, which some gentlemen within or without doors have a very good mind to do. In other words, he's talking about slavery. The states were concerned that the Constitution would allow the northern states to end slavery in the southern states. William L. Smith of South Carolina, he said, if these amendments are adopted, they will go a great way in preventing Congress. Now, here, he's talking about the Second Amendment. Because the Second Amendment, in fact, actually, in in a way, I'm giving you the, 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 the closing argument on this before I'm giving you the argument, but... Uh, basically, here's the, here's the argument in a nutshell. The Second Amendment was put in a place to preserve slavery for the South. That's why it's there. And, and uh, William L. Smith of South Carolina, one of the delegates, he said, if these amendments are adopted, they will go a great way in preventing Congress from interfering with our Negroes after 20 years. Keep in mind, uh, the Constitution actually ended the importation of slaves in 1808 and said no more taxes on slaves in 1808. The founders, the people who wrote it, actually thought that that would end slavery in 1808, which is basically 20 years after 1888. It's 30 years, actually, I think. But in any case, he says, if these amendments are adopted, it go a great way in preventing Congress from interfering after 20 years. Otherwise, they may even, within the 20 years, by strained construction of some power, embarrass us very much. In other words, end slavery. The revolution had changed America because the, the northern states were, were banning slavery like there was no tomorrow. Uh, the Americans had embraced this all-men-are-created-equal idea on which we based our slavery. In fact, Dr. Samuel Johnson, uh, who was from the north and was anti-slavery, he made the comment, How is it that the loudest yelps for liberty come from the drivers of slaves? Vermont had banned slavery in 1777, even though they were not yet a state. Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and New York all enacted gradual legislation of slavery in 1777, 1778. 
two prominent citizens of New York founded a group called the New York Society for, for Promoting the Manumission of Slaves, the, the libera liberation of slaves. The first two presidents of the group were first John Jay, our first Supreme Court justice and one of the authors of the Constitution, and then secondly, Alexander Hamilton. Southerners were very, very worried that the Northerners were going to blow up the, uh, the slave business. And this is, now here's a quote from the book, this, this book, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment by Carl Bogus. He said, uh, Virginia was a slave, was a state living in perpetual fear. Fully 44% of Virginia's total population was black, and in some areas, particularly in the eastern part of the state, blacks constituted the majority. Whites were ever mindful that if the right opportunity its, presented itself, blacks might cut their heads off. This is not hyperbole. On a Sunday morning in September 1739, for example, a group of about 20 blacks broke into a store near Stono, South Carolina for guns and powder. They decapitated the two white storekeepers, displaying their heads on the front steps, and then headed south, sacking and burning homes and killing whites on their way. They marched while flying banners, beating drums, and calling out liberty to attack, attract more slaves to the rebellion. According to one account, their numbers increased, quote, increased every minute by new Negroes coming to them so that they were above 60, some say 100, end quote. But for a coincidence, the rebellion may have grown considerably larger and perhaps even succeeded. But by chance, the lieutenant governor of South Carolina rode within eyesight of the rebel group on his way to Charleston with four other men. As best events can be reconstructed, that lieutenant governor raced to a Presbyterian church in Willtown, which was in the midst of Sunday services. Uh, this was white planters. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, somewhere between 20 and 100 armed and mounted militiamen attacked the rebel group. About 44 blacks and 21 whites died in the ensuing battle. As a warning against future insurrections, the militia decapitated black rebels and placed their heads, quote, up at every mile post they, come to, they came to, end quote. So, you know, everyone in the South knew the story of the Stono Rebellion. In fact, it wasn't just one. One researcher identified over 250 rebellions, each involving more than 10 slaves. One scholar noted slavery was not only an economic and industrial system, but more than that, it was a, gi a giant police system. And the basic instrument of control was called the Slave Patrol, also referred to as the militia. The, these militia patrols made sure that blacks were not wandering where they did not belong, gathering in groups or engaging in suspicious activity. Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia all had well-regulated slave patrols. By the mid-18th century, the 18, 1700s, the patrols had become the responsibility of the militia. Georgia passed laws in 1755 and 1757, for example, carefully dividing militia districts into discrete patrol areas. The Georgia laws required patrols to examine every plantation every month and authorize the patrols, the militias, to search, quote, all Negro houses for offensive weapons and ammunition and to apprehend and give 20 lashes to any slave found outside plantation grounds and south. And, and, end quote. In other words, in the south, these anti, the, the, these patrols to stop slave rebellions were the militia. Now, I gotta, I, I'm going to explain to you after the break how James Madison changed the Second Amendment to go from for the security of a free nation to the security of a free state to satisfy Georgia and Virginia right after this.
In the wake of the horrific massacre in Newtown, Connecticut, there is real talk about some concrete policy changes when it comes to guns. But one issue that comes up in much of this coverage that could stand in the way is public opinion, at least according to some of these media accounts. Is this really true? The New York Times told readers that, quote, public support for stricter gun control laws has waned since 2008, close quote. In USA Today, quote, Americans have been trending away from more gun laws, both in their attitudes and in lawmaking, close quote. These stories, and many more like it, tend to put most of their emphasis on a Gallup survey that asks a broad question about how people feel about current gun laws, whether they should be more strict, less strict, or stay the same. So the public doesn't evidently like the idea of new gun laws. But a good question to ask is whether people even know what current gun laws are in the first place. When polls ask more specific questions, public opinion looks a bit different. A recent CNN poll, for example, found a majority in favor of banning semi-automatic assault guns and on high-capacity ammunition clips. Other polls have reached similar conclusions. A more sensible conversation about guns in America would require a more nuanced explanation from the media about what the public really wants. Pro-gun public opinion is one thing. Another question that has come up in post-Newtown discussions is the apparent constitutional hurdle to any efforts to limit gun ownership. In many media conversations, we're told it comes down to the Second Amendment. To hear many pundits tell it, the courts have spoken clearly, and any efforts to impose new restrictions on guns will run into the insurmountable legal hurdle. You do have this problem called the Constitution, pundit Bill Bennett explained on Meet the Press. There is a Second Amendment. Harry Smith on Dateline NBC said the Second Amendment is sacred to many, many people. On NBC Nightly News, viewers were told, quote, efforts to limit gun ownership may be complicated by the fact that there is a recent Supreme Court ruling that said that the Second Amendment guarantees individuals' rights to have guns at home for self-defense, close quote. In one sense, that's true. The Supreme Court's Heller ruling in 2008 did give a boost to those who argue the Second Amendment's gun rights are about individuals. But a little more history is in order. That ruling was the first time the courts had interpreted the Second Amendment that way, and it came after several decades of legal and political advocacy that tried to reframe the Second Amendment and upend what had been the legal consensus. The ruling does not mean that the government has no power to enact sensible regulations on gun ownership. A sure sign of the success of the gun lobby's efforts is the fact that this history is often erased from discussions about guns and the Constitution. So then we grew a little and knew a lot And now we demonstrated it to the cops And all the things we said We were self-assured Cause it's a long road to wisdom But it's a short one to being ignored Be in my eyes Be in my heart Be in my eyes Now, the argument is made, well, you know, all Americans had guns that, well, all white Americans anyway, had guns, and that was a fine thing. Uh, again, back to this, uh, this book by Professor uh, Carl T. Bogus, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment. In reality, few Americans owned guns, he writes. Uh, they did a, uh, in the frontier areas of New England and western Pennsylvania, the years 1765 to 1790, there was a, they did a detailed 
search of the records of what people owned, what they left to their heirs and things. And it, this went down to things like broken teacups, you know, a list of personal property. And what they found was that 14% of the household inventories included firearms, and 53% of those guns were listed as not working. In addition, few Americans hunted. Bellin Sales writes, quote, From the time of the earliest colonial settlements, frontier families relied on Indians or professional hunters for wild game, and the colonial assemblies regulated all forms of hunting. So it's not like this, this country was birthed in everybody owning a gun. It was fairly rare, except in the South, where the white militia was used to terrorize African-American slaves. Patrick Henry and George Mason were the leaders of the anti-federalist movement. Patrick Henry of Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death fame was a big supporter of slavery, ironically. And he gave a speech at the Constitutional Convention in which he was very, very concerned that Article 1, Section 8, the powers given to the federal government, could be used to subvert the slave system. And that the way that this would happen, and what he was what he was seeing was exactly, by the way, what Abraham Lincoln did, was that the federal government, under the powers given them in Article 1, Section 8, if there was a war, they could call slaves out of the South into military service and free them, and thus bring about the end of slavery in the South. In fact, uh, here is his actual speech. He said, and, and this was, you know, in the in the debate about whether or not, again, Virginia should should sign up for the Constitution. Quote: In this state, there are two hundred and thirty-six thousand blacks, and there are many in several other states, but there are few or none in the northern states. Under its power to provide for the general defense, Congress might enlist blacks into the army and then emancipate them. Slavery is detested in the North. They will search that paper, that being the Constitution, and see if they have the power of manumission, that is, freeing the slaves. And have they not, sir? Have they not power to provide for the general defense and welfare? May they not think that these call for the abolition of slavery? May they not pronounce all slaves free, and will they not be warranted by that power? This is no ambiguous implication or logical deduction. The paper, the Constitution, speaks to the point. They have the power. This it would be the federal government if we ratify the Constitution. They have the power in clear, unequivocal terms, and will clearly and certainly exercise it. He went on to say, a decided majority of states have not the ties of sympathy and fellow feeling for those whose interests would be affected. In other words, uh, most of the states didn't, you know, they weren't all that hot about the slavery in the South. He says, the majority of Congress is to the North, and the slaves are to the South. End of quote from Patrick Henry. About why, if they, what he was saying is, if, they're, if we're going to ratify this Constitution, we have to amend it to say that the militias in the South that ride the circuit, that, 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 that they're basically like neighborhood watches, and they're armed, 
that their right to carry weapons will not be taken away. Now, James Madison responded to Patrick Henry 20 minutes after Henry gave that speech. James Madison stood up and said, I was struck with surprise when I heard him express himself alarm with respect to the emancipation of slaves. There is no power to warrant it in that paper in the Constitution. If there be, I know it not. End of quote from James Madison. But that being the case, Madison had proposed a Second Amendment which said that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies in times of peace are dangerous to liberty and therefore ought to be avoided as far as the circumstances and protection of the community will admit, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. That no standing army or regular troops shall be raised or kept up in time of peace without the consent of two-thirds of the member presence of both houses. That each state, respectively, shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and dis and disciplining its own militia, that the militia shall not be subject to martial law except in time of war. Then he, he modified that to say the right of the people to bear to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, a well-armed and well-regulated militia being necessary for the best security of a free country. This was the ultimate first draft of the Second Amendment. But no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service. Madison then changed that in response to Patrick Henry to change it from being the best security of a free country to the best defense of a free state. Now, why was he saying the best defense of a free state? Because the states in the South defended themselves by, you know, again, once the, let, let me make this very, very clear what the militia did in the South. 1755, 1757, for example, Georgia carefully divided militia districts into discrete patrol areas. They required patrols under the, under the direction of commissioned militia, state militia officers to examine every plantation each month and authorize them to search all Negro houses for offensive weapons and ammunition and apprehend and give 20 lashes to any slave found outside plantation grounds. The militia were the ones who enforced slavery in the South. And to defend that right to have slavery in a free state, not a free country, a free state, the Second Amendment was put into place. We'll be back. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for, coming for to Swing low, swing low, sweet chariot, coming, coming for to carry me here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Let me tell you guys who the NRA actually represents. Uh, so they're dead set against any of the proposals that Biden or Ob and Obama are proposing. And when you go to their website, they say, well, look, 
uh, it, the NRA is not affiliated with any firearm or ammunition manufacturers or with any businesses that deals in guns and ammunition. Oh, is that right? Well, they're not affiliated. I well, don't think that they know what the word affiliated means. Yeah, there's some <laughs> chance that they don't. So now, one thing that's true is that the NRA was not always in league with the gun manufacturers. In fact, they were for gun control uh, earlier in their existence. Yeah, and They're, the Republicans freed the slaves. Whatever. Times change. <laughs> no, I hear you. So what, what happened was that Adam Winkler, who's a professor at UCLA, did a great analysis of this, and the NRA got taken over in like a coup uh, overnight, literally overnight, in the late 1970s by the right wing, and they said, okay, we're now going to go in favor of, we now think the Second Amendment means unlimited right to guns, which the NRA did not think before that. Okay, so all right, so they win, that's fine, and they go in that direction. Later, actually, much later, 1999, Charleston Heston, who's the head of the NRA at the time, starts to connect the NRA, not to gun owners, but to gun manufacturers. In fact, he goes to a meeting of gun manufacturers and lobbyists and says, quote, your fight has become our fight, okay? For the first time connecting the NRA directly to the gun manufacturers. Now, that's okay. When the money comes in, that's when everything changes. So they did an analysis after 2005, and that's when the NRA really got into bed with the gun manufacturers and fighting it, uh, a lawsuit together, okay? And so then, here's what happens next. Gun manufacturers put in 14.7 million to 38.9 million dollars from dozens of gun industry giants including Beretta USA, Glock and Strom, Sturm and Ruger, etc. So they get this tremendous amount of money from these gun manufacturers and by the way they're also on the board, they you know, they're the major donors, right, but they're not affiliated. Not affiliated. We just happen to take tens of millions of dollars from them. Oh, and by the way, that another way that the NRA makes a tremendous amount of money is the ads that they put in the NRA magazine, which are also bought by gun manufacturers. So what happens? The NRA then turns around and helps to kill the you know uh, the um, assault weapon ban, as they did, and, and that they had begun to work together there. And as a reward, partly all this money pours in from the gun manufacturers. And since the assault weapon ban has been killed in '04, oh uh, well, rifle sales have gone up 38 percent. Mm. And since so, gun makers are ecstatic. I mean, because it went right to their bottom line. They put in money to the NRA. The NRA helps them in their causes, whether it was the lawsuit, whether it was the killing the assault weapons ban. Their sales go up. It's a great investment for them. And one thing that I always thought was like, come on, this has got to be the easiest thing. About three quarters of the country agrees with this already. It's a layup. Most of gun owners agree with it. Limit the amount of ammunition you could put in a magazine, right? Because that's what's in the massacres. That's the one, the thing that's doing the most damage. Because they could fire thirty or sometimes a hundred uh, bullets without reloading. The thirty is the most common, and and it's crazy, right? Well, the biggest donor to the NRA, seven point seven million dollars, is Midway. And what does Midway do? They produce the magazines that have more than ten bullets. The high capacity. High capacity magazines. And they're the top donor to the NRA. Gee, I yeah. wonder why the NRA fights out legislation which a great majority of gun owners agree with. Because they don't represent the gun owners, they represent the gun manufacturers. And they get paid to do so. Can, can we just talk briefly about the fact that we apparently in this country just take it for granted that there should be a permanent gun manufacturing industry in the country? Like we have, for instance, we have toilet paper manufacturers. Because we hope that every year they'll improve toilet paper a little bit better. And you always need it. 
Same for motorcycles. They make the motorcycles a little bit better. Your motorcycles wear out, you get new ones. But we don't need better guns every year. You can pretty much F a deer up now with what you've got from 50 years ago. Like, you don't need a better <laughs> scope or a bigger magazine. You can shoot, you know, an intruder with a shotgun with a gun from 30 years ago. It doesn't need to be better. Deers, are, uh, deers are smarter. They're today. evolving? No, they're, no, no, they wouldn't acknowledge that. They're more agile? Uh-huh. Armor-plated, perhaps? <laughs> right, I don't exactly. know who's putting the vests on the deer, but it's really hindering the hunter's efforts. <laughs> but, but, but because they exist, they cannot simply rely on the fact that they sold a lot of guns 30 years ago. And so their focus is always, this year we need to sell more guns, and next year we need to sell more guns. And that is insidious, and yet we take it for granted. It should just exist. This is America. Just to match with them alligator shoes. He's a rich man, so with no longer singing the blues. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. In politics, the concept of low-hanging fruit is something that ought to be politically attainable even if nothing else can be done, right? Something that we probably all can agree on even if we agree on nothing else about some particular policy. So on what is supposedly the most intractable political issue of our time, on the issue of guns in America, the lowest of the low-hanging fruit has probably been this. It's not even a law, it's just a thing. Uh, buybacks, gun buybacks, sponsored by local law enforcement or local officials, maybe even just a local church group. Gu uh, these gun buybacks are, are a simple idea. If you've got a gun that you don't want, a buyback program gives you a chance to get rid of it in a way that is safe and orderly and legal and calm. That gun in your life that you have not known what to do with, that you have been worried about. Your friendly local buyback program gives you a way to put your mind at ease. Get that unwanted gun out of your house. You hand over the gun. Usually in exchange you get a smallish amount of cash or maybe a gift card. But the larger attraction here really is that the gun gets taken off your hands and safely destroyed. In political terms, buybacks are attractive because they're not a new law, they're not a new regulation, there's no coercion involved, they're not even really an attempt at persuasion, it's just offering people a resource to rid themselves of guns they don't want without risk in a safe, orderly way. It's a totally voluntary thing. Since the mass shooting in Newtown, Connecticut a month ago, buyback programs in cities like Camden, New Jersey and Los Angeles have broken records. No questions asked. All of these guns are just taken off the streets. Well, yesterday in Tucson, Arizona, on the second anniversary of the mass shooting there that nearly killed Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and did kill six other people, the city police department in Tucson held a gun buyback. It was organized, actually, at the request of a Republican Tucson city councilman. Hundreds of people lined up in Tucson. People lined up with their guns to take part in this program. Using private funds from private, private donors, the buyback yesterday let people in Tucson turn in their unwanted guns. In return, they would get a $50 gift card for groceries. So they got money for groceries. Law enforcement got those guns off of people's hands. 
They plan to safely destroy them, taking them out of commission, taking them out of circulation. This event, again, was organized by a Republican member of the local city council. Now, no matter how contested the overall issue of guns and gun policy is in this country, this is the definition of low-hanging fruit, right? A totally voluntary thing. I mean, who could be opposed to this? The NRA is opposed to this. The NRA is wildly opposed to this. In Tucson, on the anniversary of the massacre there, the NRA has come out raging against the Tucson gun buyback program. They're trying to stop it. An NRA board member is threatening that the NRA will sue to stop Tucson from destroying the guns that people handed over. The NRA is insisting that those guns, regardless of what their owners wanted done with them, those guns must be sold to the highest bidder and put back into circulation. The NRA says the state must not destroy those weapons that people handed over specifically so those weapons could be destroyed. Instead, the NRA says the state has to sell them on, keep them in circulation, uh, and thereby become a gun dealer itself. When your response to the political cliché of low-hanging fruit is something so cartoonishly insensitive, so cartoonishly villainous, you then bring upon us a second political cliché. You have jumped the shark, blocking voluntary efforts by people to get rid of their own guns because they want to voluntarily. That is an exercise in shark jumping. This is the sort of thing that might make sense internally to the NRA when they talk amongst themselves about this issue, but to the rest of the country where people are really not picking a fight, but instead just looking for problem-solving, non-confrontational non ways to help each other out. Trying to block the voluntary Tucson gun buyback program does not make sense. The whole reason gun policy is supposed to be seen as so intractable, so unreformable, so politically untouchable in modern America, is that the National Rifle Association has created a mystique about themselves, a mystique about their own power that is supposed to caution anyone who might want to reform gun laws that it just cannot be done. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, no matter how or why we might want to reform our gun laws, no matter what happens in the country to make us think about these things, we are supposed to be so intimidated by the raw power of the NRA that we cannot even take a first step toward reform. We cannot even really seriously talk about reform let alone ever expect anything to pass. The NRA has created this mystique about themselves. They expect us to be enthralled by that mystique. The Beltway Press is enthralled by that mystique. But empirically speaking, that mystique is kind of hard to justify. You know how the Sunlight Foundation added up political spending in this past election to see who got the most bang for their buck in their political spending? It was really bad on the right. Right? The, the Republican Party's House Campaign Committee spent almost $65 million, but only 32% of what they spent went to campaigns in which their candidate was successful. So two to one, their money was spent on losing. It was worse for the Republican Party's Senate campaign. For their investment of $32 million, bucks, only 24% paid off in terms of races that went the way they wanted to. Three to one, their money was spent losing. FreedomWorks was about the same. Only 24% of their 20 million bucks actually bought the result that it was spent on. And the Chamber of Commerce, which is supposed to be such an impressive and unassailable campaign cash juggernaut, the, camp, the, the Chamber of Commerce spent $32 million, but less than 7% of what they spent went to winning candidates they wanted to win or against losing candidates that they wanted to lose. Less than 7%. They were 93% ineffective in what they spent. 
Even worse than that was Karl Rove's American Crossroads, which was like the conservative politics marquee humiliation this year. Under Karl Rove's visionary Svengali leadership, Crossroads spending was profoundly ineffective this year. They spent over $100 million in the last election, and zero of the candidates they wanted to win actually won. Zero. Of all the candidates they spent money against, candidates who they wanted to defeat, only two of those candidates nationwide actually did lose. Which means that Karl Rove's group, Crossroads, had a less than 2% success rate in their spending. More than 98% of the money that they spent did not work. It's not very intimidating, right? I mean, think about it. If past is prologue, then in planning for the next election, if you're a political candidate, you'd be very well off hoping for a Karl Rove spending campaign against you. It would do wonders for your odds. Because 98% of the money that he spent in the last election went the way he didn't want it to go. It was wasted. But even Karl Rove's massively ineffectual spending on the last campaign looks positively impressive, positively robust, Compared to the right-wing group that did worst of all, you think these other groups sucked? Check out the NRA. Whoop. The NRA's power in the last election, as measured by whether their spending resulted in the desired outcome, barely registers on this graph. That's why we had to put the big black arrow there so you could see it. 0.83% of their $11 million that they spent in the last election actually resulted in the NRA's preferred outcome. Less than 1% of their money went to support candidates who won or to oppose candidates who lost. More than 99% of what they spent was wasted. Their candidates lost. Their targeted enemies won. That is demonstrable, empirical impotence. But remember, we're supposed to be very intimidated by the NRA. We're supposed to be so intimidated by their raw political power and the way they spend money in elections that we will not even talk about changing gun laws in this country if they don't want us to. All of that NRA spending with nothing to show for it was just this past election. Since the election, there has been Newtown. And the way they have responded to Newtown has been widely derided, even by the political right, as just nuts, as ridiculous. NRA loon in bizarre rant over Newtown. That was the New York Post, which is not to be confused with something like Mother Jones, right? That's the right. NRA leader Wayne LaPierre proposing more guns in schools as the solution to gun violence, saying guns are not the problem, Hollywood is the problem. He said, Hollywood glorifying gun violence, that's the real problem, America. And at the same time that Wayne LaPierre was blaming Hollywood glorifying gun violence for violence in this country, the National Rifle Association at its headquarters, at its National Firearms Museum, was re-upping its exhibit to show how much the NRA loves Hollywood guns. This is the kind of behavior that might pass muster for some sort of club that exists simply to comfort and entertain its own members in private. This is not the behavior of a political group that expects to be taken seriously in politics, that expects to be seen as an important and influential actor on serious issues. I mean, your behavior, especially when all eyes are on you, on your supposed area of expertise, it really can lead you outside the realm of relevance. You really can decide to put your lead character in a leather jacket and shorts on water skis jumping over a shark. When you do that, you are amazing as spectacle. And you are one of the great American political cliches of the modern era. But you are not to be taken seriously anymore when the adults are talking. And so the NRA, which wants to be feared and respected, is not respected and should no longer be feared. At a time when the nation is talking about the issue of guns, the NRA is a thing, but it's not the thing. 
The NRA will have a seat tomorrow when Vice President Joe Biden hosts another wide-ranging meeting soliciting broad-based policy ideas about how to prevent the kind of mass violence that we saw at Newtown last month. The NRA is going to have a seat, but there's going to be a lot of other people who have seats too. Today, Vice President Biden and Attorney General Eric Holder met with victims of gun violence and with anti-violence organizers. Last night, the House Democratic congressman who's been charged by Nancy Pelosi with soliciting ideas and proposals for reform, Congressman Mike Thompson, who himself is a wounded Vietnam veteran and a gun owner and a hunter, Mike Thompson held a well-attended, a very well-attended, uh, civil and constructive town hall in his district in California. He's holding another town hall meeting tonight, and he's holding another one the day after that. Today, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in his State of the State address proposed several new gun-related reforms that he intends to pursue, including a ban on high-capacity magazines. We are proposing today common-sense measures. And I say to you, forget the extremists. It's simple. No one hunts with an assault rifle. No one needs 10 bullets to kill a deer. And too many innocent people have died already. And the madness now. Pass safe, reasonable gun control in the state of New York. Make this state safer. Save lives. Set them an example for the rest of the nation. Let them look at New York and say, this is what you can do. And this is what you should do. This is New York, the progressive capital. You show them how we lead. You show them how we lead. New York's governor taking on the most supposedly intractable issue of our time, calling on New York state lawmakers to take that issue on themselves. Forget the extremists, he says. Now, Governor Cuomo yesterday got a huge boost from prosecutors throughout New York State. And we think of New York State as being dominated by New York City, but New York State is a diverse state. And prosecutors from all over the state delivered to the governor a list of measures they support in terms of gun control. The list of prosecutors who signed that letter are overwhelmingly, mostly, Republicans. And some of them, like Franklin County District Attorney Derek Champagne, which is definitely the best news, uh, best name in news today, uh, are themselves gun owners and gun enthusiasts. After signing that letter of support for common sense gun law reforms, Derek Champagne said part of the reason that he and other gun owners feel comfortable with this list of new reforms that they've given to the governor is that they, as gun owners, grew up in New York State which has gun restrictions that are already among the toughest in the country. And from that experience, they know that gun reforms are not the end of the world. Quote, at the end of the day, I know that I can still hunt, I can still fish, I can still have my handgun. And under any of these proposals, my lawful right to carry firearms in New York State would not be impeded in any way. The only people saying that this cannot be done, that we cannot reform our gun laws, are the NRA and the people who believe what the NRA has to say about itself. But they are not the only ones who get to speak to this issue anymore. Now everybody gets a turn. Come on, come on and lead the way. Speak up, speak up and be not afraid. Everyone, everyone, won't you let me hear you? Speak for everything that ever spoke to you. Come on, come on and lead the way. Speak up, speak up and be not afraid. Everyone, everyone, won't you let me hear you? Speak for everything that ever spoke to you. We were standing in the starlight With my hands around her waist So 
Someone has to tell America's gun nuts to stop wetting their army surplus pants about losing the Second Amendment. It's not your Second Amendment rights that are under attack. It's all the other ones. It used to be that law enforcement couldn't search you without probable cause. But now we're becoming a quasi-police state where one minute you're home quietly reading Fifty Shades of Grey <laughs> and suddenly there's a SWAT team in your living room waving guns and you're going, no, no, Cat Williams lives next door. <laughs> now, <laughs> last month, while no one was taking anyone's gun from anybody, the Senate voted overwhelmingly to reauthorize a program where they can collect data on any American citizen and hold on to it forever. They can look at your emails, your texts, your Skypes, and not a peep out of the crowd that's always bitching about what the framers intended. In fact, the answer from almost everyone seems to be, oh, what the hell, the airport screeners have already seen my ass anyway. <laughs> the Facebook generation especially doesn't seem to care that Big Brother knows everything about you, what books you read, what movies you watch, your Match.com account, your other Match.com account. <laughs> When you're feeling a little freaky and want to meet the sort of woman your regular Match.com account wouldn't approve of. <laughs> Call me old school, but I don't want the feds Googling what I'm Googling. It's bad enough when Netflix pries into my private life. You watch The Walking Dead and Zombieland, you might also like this interview with John McCain. the government doing that? You downloaded this article favoring the legalization of marijuana. You might also like being incarcerated. <laughs> you know, they always say these programs are just to catch terrorists. <laughs> the next thing you know, they're using them to shut down the pot dispensaries. And that place was right on my way home. <laughs> now I gotta go to Valley Village. <laughs> Doesn't anyone care that this is the new normal? I guess not, because gun nuts don't care, and neither do liberals. When Bush did wire warrantless wiretapping, oh, he was wiping his ass with the Constitution. But when Obama does it, oh, well, whatever helps Jessica Chastain find bin Laden. We're, we're good with that. Yeah, both parties compete mightily to appear to be the greater champion of our freedoms, but the only thing that still has bipartisan support in Washington is not giving a shit about privacy. And when you talk to the NRA types, as I like to do down at my local Moose Lodge, <laughs> they actually believe that what protects their rights isn't laws or courts, it's that they have a gun. They think that's what keeps the government going too far. Without guns, Obama would become an emperor and force everyone to gay marry. But he can't because a guy in Kentucky named Skeeter has a 22. <laughs> Except that, you know, while you guys were buying guns to protect your other guns, sitting up on the porch there waiting for Obama's Negro army, Come confiscate your weapons and go all Django Unchained on your ass. That's when we lost all the stuff in the Bill of Rights about trials and juries and warrants. You see, the Redcoats, they never wanted your gun. They wanted your liberty. And that's why the Founding Fathers said you could have the gun, dumbass. 
And now the only right we have left is the guns and left nothing left to use the guns to protect. We're like a strip club with a million bouncers and no strippers. And when I see you, I really see you upside down. But my brain knows better. It picks you up and turns you around, turns you around, turns you around. If you feel discouraged when there is a lack of color here. President Obama introduced uh, a, a number of ideas for gun control, uh, banning assault weapons, high capacity magazines, etc. But those are not in effect. Those have to go through Congress. It is legislation, right? On top of that, he signed 23 executive orders. Now, if a president is abusing his executive power, we are the first show to point it out here. We did it under Bush, and we're doing it under Obama. We take a lot of heat from Democrats now. We used to take a lot of heat from Republicans. Uh, this idea of indefinitely detaining U.S. citizens is absurd. We're executing U.S. citizens abroad without a trial. Those are grotesque violations of the Constitution and uh, abuse of executive power. So are these executive orders on gun control uh, along similar lines? Not even close. So all of the Republicans now flipping it, oh my God, there's an executive order. Executive orders have happened all the time. Uh, and what it is, is the executive branch saying, I direct, for example, the president saying, I direct another part of the executive branch, like for example, the Center for Disease Control, to do something. That's totally within his power. If he can't do that, then he has no power at all. So within these 23 executive orders, did he do something outrageous? No, let me give you an example. He's requiring federal agencies to hand over relevant data for background check system. They already have the data. He's saying, make sure that you coordinate. A million percent within the purview of the executive branch. They're not doing anything new. All they're saying is, hey, look, if this department and that department have data on background checks, they should share it to make sure that, for example, we don't have a mentally ill person who gets through that web and winds up getting a gun, as happened at Virginia Tech. Totally reasonable. Uh, first responders and school officials uh, should have better training for active shooting situations. Who's against that? You want the cops to have worse training? I mean, obviously within the executive branch and obviously unobjectionable, unless you're crazy. Uh, and then I don't think even conservatives can find a way to object to that. Uh, then he's directing the Centers for Disease Control to research causes and prevention of gun violence. Wow. Research? Oh my, I can't believe Obama destroyed the Second Amendment. He wants research. Centers for Disease Control, within the uh, control of the executive branch. He's saying, with the funds you already have, do this research. Totally within executive power. If it was outside of executive power, even if I agreed with the policy, I promise you that I would come down like a ton of bricks and say it is not the right way to go. This is exactly what the president is supposed to do. Now you can disagree with the policy, that's perfectly understandable. But you can't say that it's a violation of the Constitution or, or his role. That's nuts. But of course, the present day Republican Party is nothing but nuts. It's just, what kind of nut are you? A walnut, a chestnut, chin nut? So let's go to Rand, uh, one of those, Sean Hannity. He's going to talk to Rand Paul in a second, but first he's got to get his, uh, this out of his system.
Hey, my next guest has decided to stand up to King Obama, and in a Hannity exclusive, <laughs> Senator Rand Paul is unveiling new legislation to stop Obama's assault on your Second Amendment rights. King Obama, here we go. I can't oh, research. He wants the cops to get better training. What a king. What a monarch. So he continues. But it's not the first time that he's done this, and there have been no, a no, I mentioned this earlier in the program, mm. he didn't seek congressional authority when he used military strikes on, on Libya, recess appointments, the Senate wasn't in recess, um, he couldn't get the DREAM Act passed, so an executive order to allow illegal immigrants to stay in the country, Obamacare, obviously he used the reconciliation process, they wouldn't defend the Defense of Marriage Act, they weakened welfare work requirements, and the contraceptive mandate. All, he's doing all of this now without congressional approval. Okay, 40% of that is a total fabrication. They didn't loosen the work requirements in welfare, it's just a total lie. 40% of it is true, things that they actually did do, but are totally within executive power. And he's actually right about, for example, Libya. Now, I agreed with the Libya policy, but did the president overstep his bounds by not going to Congress? Yes, every president's doing it, and, it, and it's wrong. Look, if you're going to declare... If you're going to go to a military action, it's a war. If it looks like a war, it acts like a war, it's a war. You've got to get, do a declaration of war and you've got to go through Congress. So he's right about that. The rest of it is like, oh my God, I, I can't believe he did the same exact things as Bush, but actually a little less. So spare me the indignation about the monarch. The czars, the czars. All the Republicans are now talking back, bring the czars back. They were all the same czars under Bush and Reagan. Unreal. So now finally here comes Rand Paul. You have separation of powers, so the powers check and balance each other. And I'm very concerned about this president. FDR had a little bit of this king complex also. We had to limit FDR finally because he served so many terms that I think he would have ruled in perpetuity. I'm very concerned about this president garnering so much power and arrogance that he thinks he can do whatever he wants. FDR would have served in perpetuity, but uh, Republicans limited him? I got bad news for you. He died in office. And you didn't limit him at all. Okay. And he's a beloved president that was incredibly successful. Now, look, later, limited to two terms, the presidents are. I actually agree with that. But you got to check your history a little bit. But his idea is, oh, my God, these progressives who want to be king. I know, because the left wing abuses their power. The right wing would never do that, right? Uh, and at other times, Paul has said, our founding fathers were very concerned about us having the separation of powers, which is true. If it was a real issue, they didn't want to let the president become a king. I mean, they're calling this guy a king over and over again. It's madness. Based on this, you weren't worried about the warrantless wiretapping. You weren't, I mean, and to be fair to Rand Paul, he was worried about the National Defense Authorization Act, but the rest of the Republican Party wasn't. And you're worried about him saying, hey, do a little bit more research at CDC. Okay, Rand Paul also said, I'm afraid that President Obama may have this king complex sort of developing. I think there's a history of this arrogance. And also said, I'm against having a king. I got it, dude. I got it. I got you. King, king, king. I got it. God, these guys are amazing at propaganda. I think having a monarch is what we fought the American Revolution over. And someone who wants to bypass the Constitution, bypass Congress, that's someone who wants to act like a king or a monarch. President Obama, in his first term, acted, by all indications, incredibly weak. Now, when you go into negotiations, I'm not the one saying it. John Boehner would come out of the negotiations, as he did one time, and talk to 60 Minutes and said, I got 98% of what I wanted. He did it again in this fiscal cliff deal that the Republicans kept crying about. 
Boehner said after the deal, he said, look, man, we got the Bush tax cuts made permanent, which we couldn't do under Bush, for 99% of Americans. He's like, I think I won that one. <laughs> yes, yes, they keep pushing Obama around and winning. And the minute he does the simplest little things, they're like, oh, king, monarch, I can't believe, shut up, do, do as we tell you. You're not the president, we're the president. Can you believe how much, how arrogant this guy is? <laughs> Unreal, man. I Look, these guys are, they're off the deep edge. So if I was the president, I'd be like, okay, wait, wait. You want to complain about my executive orders? That's funny you mentioned that because I got 23 more today. Oh, we can keep talking. You want to keep going? Go back on hand. Let me see if I can come up with another 23 tomorrow. Now, look, don't abuse the office, and I, and I would never be in favor of that. But this is nowhere near it. Just because the Republicans are screaming it doesn't make it true, doesn't make it a real debate. It doesn't mean that you should split the difference and go, oh, I guess maybe he's not a king, maybe he's a prince. <laughs> no, these are perfectly acceptable. Look at the actual facts to determine what the reality is. Don't listen to this nonsense propaganda. Hi, Jay. This is Adam. I'm calling about the gun control debate episode that you just published. I think that one of the most important ways that the recent gun control debate has been skewed in the media is by the misuse of the word rights. Those who stand against gun control legislation, so the gun lobby, often refer to their desire to protect their gun rights. Now, even though the Second Amendment does say that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, this is a use of the word right in its legal meaning. I think this is distinct from moral rights, if you will. So a religious person would probably say that these moral rights come from God, and a non-religious person would most likely base such rights on moral philosophy. Either way, most people would agree that rights in the moral sense of the word are inherent to all people, rather than prescribed by a document such as the Constitution. Now, it probably sounds like I'm splitting hairs with this, uh, but I think that blurring this distinction has had a big impact on the gun debate. The United States became an independent country in part to break free of a regime that had been seen to infringe civil liberties and the basic moral rights of all people. And it is, I think, still deeply ingrained in the national psyche to fight against any perceived infringement on these moral rights. This is why the portrayal of the legal right to gun ownership as a moral right by the gun lobby has such a strong impact. When people class gun ownership alongside life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it's no wonder that they would refuse to consider sensible restrictions on, say, assault weapons or the size of ammunition clips. I was particularly interested by the clip that you played, which discussed the history of the Second Amendment, specifically on the difference between well-regulated militias and standing armies. And really, I think one thing that the country will at some point just have to accept is that the Second Amendment is an anachronistic remnant of an era in which gun ownership was probably necessary. Now, while I doubt that uh, repeal of the Second Amendment is possible, it's probably time that the country grew up and uh, learned to move on from that uh, and started passing sensible gun ownership to protect our children and each other. So, thank you very much. I really love your show. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Alfonso. Um, I just have a little something I'd like to put out for debate. 
Uh, I think that this whole gun control issue is kind of a waste of time. Guns have had zero effect on my life or on the lives of anyone that I have ever met in my entire life. I believe that these ethical debates are divisive and that they dilute the power of the left and, and distract from the root cause of every political problem we have, corporate personhood. They're symptomatic of a broken system and it's a bit like playing whack-a-mole because they keep popping up. We face countless problems of which the majority could be solved if we got at the heart of all of them. So let's not lose focus. Abolish corporate personhood. Love the show, Jay. Thanks for putting it out there. Hi, Jay. This is David from Vancouver, B.C. in response to Mara from Pittsburgh from episode 682. Responsibility and blame are two sides of the same coin only when it's the same coin. This is easier to explain with a different example. Hurricane preparedness is my responsibility, but not being prepared for a hurricane does not make me to blame for a hurricane. Whether my home is damaged or destroyed, and whether I am killed or injured in a hurricane, may have nothing to do with my level of preparedness. So, responsibility for the hurricane and for the damage is completely disconnected from my responsibility to prepare to minimize the damage. We sometimes say responsibility when we mean reasonable preparedness, and it brings with it the misplaced blame. We also say responsible person when we mean reliable person. I'd say that shift of words will make it easier to talk to Mara's daughter and to the people who debate about sexual assault. The reliable person prepared for the catastrophe but was injured. See how that's different from blame? The same principle applies not only to assault, but also to other aspects of social responsibility. Many conservatives do not want to help the poor because the social safety net seems to forgive the poor their responsibility to better themselves. But no one wants to be poor, and no one wants to be assaulted. So maybe they weren't the most reliable person, but we should still help them rather than blame them. The rarest catastrophe can bring the most prepared person to the brink of death. Humanity succeeds when we cooperate, especially to protect and save the most vulnerable. I believe that's the only function of government, but that's another discussion. Hi Jay, this is John in Reno. I'm calling to uh, second the uh, caller last on the last show that was mentioning the good things that uh, Christians and evangelicals do that would uh, agree with the progressive agenda. Uh, and to, I'd like to point out the Sojourners organization. You can find them at sojo.net, S-O-J-O.net. Very aggressive organization with Christian beliefs focused on social justice issues and fighting poverty. So I encourage the listeners to look at that if they want to see examples of where Christians uh, take the teaching of love your neighbor to, you know, to, to heart and actually do things that are good for others. So uh, thanks for the show. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So there are definitely at least a couple of uh, pretty interesting voicemails today, Uh, you know, one dissecting how the NRA has, uh, you know, affected our language to the point of blurring the line between uh, moral rights and legal rights and what impact that has had on the culture, and and then the one about, uh, you know, blame versus responsibility was sort of, I, I can barely wrap my mind around it. And at first glance, my tendency is to feel like I disagree with it, but but mostly just because I um, have to listen to it a couple more times before I, uh, you know, fully understand potentially. But if you have a response to, uh, you know, either of those or anything else, uh, please call those in the number again, 206-202-3410. But coming up in the next show, I'm really going to try to give myself a little bit more time at the end to discuss sort of culture, how it changes, how it gets manipulated, and uh, how we've ended up where we are, which can hopefully start a discussion about how to get where we want to go on purpose. Uh, and, and, And of course, if that's even possible. So uh, that's coming up in the next show. That's going to be it for today, though. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com Fine fine town, black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor